Good evening. Grateful for the presence of everyone tonight, especially those that were away at Journey at the uh, Young Adult Retreat. Good to see those that have made it back for everybody who was praying for that effort and those that volunteered time and resources for that. I do want to make an announcement for the high school students and the young adults. There will not be an Into the Word Monday night class um, on tomorrow, so we'll skip this week and we'll be back on track for next week. But we did have a good time. We had some lessons, had some fun and fellowship. And I'm just glad to still be considered a young adult. And so it's been a great time and glad to be back tonight. The Bible makes no mistake about the fact that Jesus is the savior of the whole world. And passages like 1 John 2 and verse 2, the Bible tells us that he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Then there are the whosoever passages that make up our New Testament and passages like John 3 and verse 16. We read for God so loved the world. That he gave his one of a kind son that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. On the day of Pentecost, Peter cried out in Acts 2 and verse 21, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It seems just as easy as any other Bible truth that Jesus came to save all humanity and draw all people to himself. And yet not everybody believes that. There is the mistaken idea in religious circles that Jesus came for a special group of elect individuals that were predetermined before the world. And everybody in that group is already determined to be saved and everybody outside of that group is already determined to be lost. And while passages like Ephesians one and verse four do teach that the saved are termed the elect, it's not a predetermined facet by Jesus. It's open to everybody. And all those who accept Jesus are in that group of elect. But then there are others who look at their past. They look at their life and the things that they've done and they hear the passages about Jesus being the savior for everybody in the world. Romans five, six through eight. When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. And they say that couldn't be me. In their humility, they reject the possibility that Jesus could or even would die for somebody like them. In the first century, there was the Jewish faction about circumcision and Jewish people said to themselves, or at least some of the Judaizing teachers, Jesus is the savior for everybody in the world who becomes a Jew. And a person would have to be circumcised and enter into the Jewish heritage, physically speaking, before he or she could be saved. And Paul writes by inspiration at length to say that just simply isn't the case. Jesus came to save all men and there's no value in circumcision or appealing to any other system outside of grace in the New Testament in order to be saved. And then last but not least, there's the pharisaical mindset. That says if there is a savior, then certainly he would save, but only save people who were as morally upright and righteous as I deem them necessary. And this is a short sighted view of who God is. And it's a self-centered view of what Jesus ultimately came to do for all that the Bible says about Jesus being the savior for all people. You just look around our world, look around your world and you'll realize yet not everybody wants to be. Jesus wants to save everybody. And so why isn't everybody saved? It's because ultimately people don't want him. John five and verse thirty nine, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life. But those scriptures testify of me and you won't come to me so that you might have life. Jesus came to save everybody, but he'll only save those who come to him. I don't know why the PowerPoint's not on. So for note takers, it's going to be on you all tonight. But go ahead and turn your Bible to Mark chapter two. 
Jack read for us a moment ago from Mark chapter 2. Look at those guys. Johnny on the spot. Can't do it without them. All right. Mark chapter 2 tonight. Just notice what Jesus is going to do in Mark 2. We've got the context. Though Mark's entire gospel is ultimately about who Jesus is, in Mark chapter 2, we get an idea of a pattern that emerges. As you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's not simply the case that Jesus is a saver, a helper, and a healer, but there is a certain demographic of people certain category of people that continuously find themselves in Jesus's presence and find Jesus saving them. And as we read this chapter, I want us to keep two things in mind as we work through it tonight. Number one, am I one of those kinds of people? And then in the second place, when we think about our evangelistic efforts, are we thinking and reaching out to these kind of people? Mark chapter two can rightly be called the questioning chapter of Jesus. In the context of Mark chapter two, there are several questions that are posed to Jesus. The chapter works this way. Jesus does something. And then the Pharisees or the scribes, they question Jesus. In Mark two and verse seven, they question, how can this man forgive sin? In Mark two and verse 16, they have questions about how can Jesus be eating with other individuals who they deem as sinners? In Mark chapter two and verse 18, they have questions about Jesus and his disciples not fasting when they fast. And finally, in Mark two and verse 24, they have questions about how Jesus and his disciples do what they believe to be unlawful on the Sabbath. But what I don't want us to miss as we make our way through Mark chapter two and guys, if y'all can advance the slide for me, my remote's not working. But as we make our way through Mark chapter two, what I want us to appreciate is that there are certain types of individuals, though everything in Mark chapter two is telling them not to, they can't help but follow Jesus. Tonight, five categories of people that follow Jesus and those same types of people are in our world today. And hopefully it's true about us that we follow him in the same regard. Here's number one. If you could advance the slide for me, number one, the hurting. The first time Jesus read scripture, as far as we're concerned in the Bible, in Luke chapter four, verses 18 through 19, we're told Jesus goes into the synagogue. He finds Isaiah chapter 61, verses one and two. And what Jesus does is he opens up that scroll. And as Jesus opens up that scroll, he reads this prophecy from Isaiah. And he says this prophecy is ultimately about me and my ministry. Isaiah 61, verses one and two says about the Messiah when he comes, the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted, and to preach the acceptable year of our Lord and release those individuals from captivity. In summary, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and Luke 4, 18 through 19, which shows the fulfillment, shows that Jesus came to help people that were hurting. You open up your Bible to Mark chapter 2, and what you find is Jesus is back in Capernaum, Mark chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Verse 2 says there are so many people in this house in Capernaum. Jesus is preaching the word to them, and there's no room, even at the doors. And there's a paralyzed man who's brought by four of his friends. They can't get in the house, and so they begin to tear up the roof, and they let this man down, this paralytic, right before Jesus. And first, Jesus forgives his sins, verses six and verse seven. And eventually Jesus fixes his stride as he tells him, son, take up your bed, walk and go home. But what we shouldn't miss is that this man came to Jesus because he was hurting, hurting physically, no doubt, but hurting nonetheless. And throughout the Gospels, the kinds of people that came to Jesus, the kind of people that followed Jesus were people that were hurting. One chapter before this in Mark chapter one, verse 32 down through 34, it talks about the miracles Jesus did. And he was healing people even as the sun was coming down in Mark chapter one, verse 40 down through 45. He cleansed the leper with the mere word. He just simply said, be cleansed. And the man was over and over again. What we find in the Gospels are broken hearted people who are struggling, coming to Jesus. And guess what? 
Jesus helps the hurting. What kind of people followed Jesus then? People that were hurting. A few years ago at the Freed Hardeman Lectureship, I was in a preacher therapy session that Jeff Jenkins was doing for preachers and really for anybody who wanted to be in there. And he made this remark, and it was true then and it's true now. He said to preachers, always remember, there's pain on every pew. He said there are people hurting on every pew, dealing with life and struggling through life. And you must never forget that as you read the Bible and then you look at our news and look around our world. People are hurting in the same ways and really about much of the same things that they were in Jesus's day. People are worried about their health. People struggle with their self-esteem. There's financial issues and turmoil. There's insecurities and family circumstances that cause people to hurt. And the reality is Jesus can still help and heal all of those hurts. What kind of people follow Jesus? People that realize they couldn't do life on their own. A man named Jesse Ventura said he's an atheist. Christianity and religion is ultimately for the weak, for people who need a crutch throughout life, who use their religion as an excuse to stick their nose in other people's business. Ventura says, I'm not a religious person whatsoever. I live my life by the golden rule that says treat others like you want to be treated. Now, I don't know where he got that from. I think it's in the Bible. But he forgot something. Christianity is for people who realize they can't do life on their own. And so they've come to throw themselves on the mercy of God. And as you read the Gospels, those are the kind of people that flock to Jesus with full speed. It's what made the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, 20 through 24, say, I've got to make my way to Jesus, because if I can get to him, my circumstances, they'll improve. It's what makes the woman in Mark chapter 5. Say to herself, how desperate do you have to be to say these words? Mark chapter five, verse 27 through 30. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, I believe I'll be made well. It's what put the base in Bartimaeus's cry in Mark 10, 46 through 52, though the crowds tried to hush him. He says, Jesus, have mercy on me, son of David, because he believed in his hurting. Jesus was and is the one who ultimately could fix his pain and his problems. John, if you could advance the slide, you probably know him. This is Mr. Evil Knievel, also known as Robert Craig Knievel. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records. He's considered the pioneer for long jumping motorcycles across various structures. But he's in the Guinness Book of World Records because he holds the world record for the most broken bones. He is he fractured 433 bones by 1975. He's been concussed in his brain, broken two arms and had a major fall in a jump at a Chicago amphitheater as he tried to jump across a tank full of sharks in the 1970s. Mr. Knievel was broken in all of the wrong ways. And throughout the Gospels, people like that physically came to Jesus. But Jesus was also concerned with healing people who came to him with broken hearts. Psalm 34 and verse 18 says, God is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We really need to be careful with Christianity that we don't advertise our faith as a faith for people whose lives are already pretty much put together. They're pretty good people. They've got everything worked out. And Christianity just serves in this case for people that kind of need just a little cherry on top and icing on the cake. Listen, in our evangelism, of course, Mark 16, 15, preach the gospel to every creature. Go throughout all the world, most assuredly, but especially the hurting especially people that life has broken them. What kinds of people? People coming out of divorce. People struggling to raise their children. People taking care of their aged parents. 
People that don't know how they're going to make it. They're living from paycheck to paycheck. They don't know if they have enough gas to get to work the next day. People that are struggling with whether or not they even want to live. People like that in the Gospels ran to Jesus and we ought to be running to them. The hurting people in society came to Jesus because they believe if I could just get to Jesus, he'd be able to help me and fix my problems. See, people that are hurting in those ways, they realize already that the world is bankrupt for solutions. They've been punched in the gut by life and they've come to realize what hopefully we all come to realize that the human problem is not solved by wisdom, wealth or IQ. They don't need a religious happy pill. What they ultimately want are divine solutions that can improve their lives in ways they never could otherwise. People that are hurting in that way flock to Jesus and made their way to him. And we need to keep the doors open for people like that today. We need to remind them that their difficulties and hardships don't disqualify them. It may be the very thing that brings them into the presence of Almighty God. God is near to those who call on him, all of them who call on him in truth. Psalm 145 and verse 18. First Samuel 22 verses one and two. It says when David was on the run from King Saul, three types of people found David. Those that were distressed, those that were indebted and those that were in bitterness of soul. And when the true son of David came, the same kinds of people came to him. Those distressed, those spiritually indebted, and those in bitterness of soul. And Jesus couldn't wait to see him and help him. Here's number two. The second group of people that came to Jesus were those that were hungry and thirsty. Jesus makes his way in Mark chapter 2 out of the house, which we believe is Simon Peter's in Capernaum. And the Bible says in verse 13 that he's walking along the sea. As he leaves the house, the people were coming to Jesus. And then the Bible says he was teaching them. If you write in your Bible, maybe make a mark from verse 13 all the way back up to verse 2. Because in the house, in Mark chapter 2 and verse 2, they're gathered together in the house and Jesus is preaching the word to them. But then in verse 13, Jesus leaves and he's walking by the sea. And the text tells us they follow Jesus again and Jesus starts teaching them again. Now, we miss it in English, but in the original language, both them following Jesus and the teaching of Jesus are both in the imperfect tense, which means they kept coming and Jesus kept teaching. The kinds of people that followed Jesus were the people that were hungry and thirsty for his message. You know, Jesus oftentimes did miracles. And after he had done a great deal of them, he would get away from the crowds, probably to have spiritual devotion with the father, but also to replenish his energy. If you look back one chapter in Mark, chapter one and verse thirty five, it says Jesus rose early in the morning and departed from the multitude so that he could pray. He run away from the crowds. And on this occasion, no doubt, Jesus leaves this house, leaves Simon's house, believes that he's going to get a breath of fresh air only to be followed by this multitude. Question, what do they want? On this occasion, they don't want fishes and loaves. They don't want more miracles and more signs. They want more teaching. Jesus promised in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 and verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. And while some people would hear Jesus's teaching and they would walk away and never want to hear anything else Jesus had to say, there were people like this who came to Jesus and they were hungry and thirsty to be taught the truth. When Jesus taught about his body being needed to be consumed for eternal life and his blood needing to be drunk in John six, there was a group of folks that said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And you remember what Jesus said to the twelve, John six, sixty six down through verse 70. Will you also go away? Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? We believe you have the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that you're the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, Peter was saying we would like more of that, please. We need to be taught. Hold your hand in Mark 2 and go to Acts 13. 
Because this spirit of the kind of people that followed Jesus was true during Jesus' earthly ministry. It was true during the apostolic ministry of the first century, and it's still true tonight. The kind of people that followed Jesus loved being taught by Jesus so they could learn the very things that they needed to do to please him. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are in the synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia. But notice Acts 13 and verse 42. After they have already preached a sermon, Luke tells us in Acts 13 and verse 42 that the people begged that these words would be preached to them the next Sabbath. I've never had anybody beg me to preach the same sermon next week. But if you want this one, we can fire it up next week, right? They beg Paul and Barnabas, hey, preach that same sermon again. We want more of that next week. Two verses later, Acts 13 and verse 44 says the whole city gathered together to hear the word. Why would they do something like that? Because they were hungering and thirsting for the message about Jesus. Those are the kinds of people that follow Jesus. I'm telling you, we need this for evangelism. We want to go out and seek and save the lost. That's important. That's our responsibility. But keep in mind, there is no way for us to make people interested who really are not. There were two types of people that heard the parables of Jesus. We can sow the seed and we can water, but God will only give the increase if they have a heart like this one. Some people would hear the parables of Jesus and they walk home and say, you know, that was a pretty good story about a man with two sons or about a farmer that sowed seed. But then there were other people that said, Jesus, you've got to explain that to me. I want to understand what that's all about. Would you tell me more about how that works and what's really the spiritual truth and depth behind that teaching? And Jesus would break it down and explain it for him because he came for people like that. There are some people who get about all that they can stand of Jesus on a Sunday morning. They never I'm not talking about people who can't come back. I'm talking about people. They just won't. They never will. First Peter two and verse two, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word. They just never will. They're satisfied with right where they are. And then there are other people who sort of swim on the shallow end of the spiritual pool. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. By now, they should be teachers. They study the same things, the same passages. They never venture into new books. They're content right where they are. But there are some. There are some who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And God promises that when people do that, they'll be satisfied. I'm not talking about hungering and thirsting in the sense that I just want to be a Bible whiz and know everything. No, these are the kinds of people that really believe God's word holds the answers to everything they need to know in life. The deepest questions of the human heart. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? And how do I get there? And there were people when they heard Jesus teaching, they would say, Jesus, give me more. If Jesus tried to run out of town, they would chase him down because they wanted Jesus to preach and teach to them about the truth. And those same kind of people follow Jesus today. Here's number three. The kind of people that followed Jesus were those who were willing to leave behind everything. Mark chapter two and verse 14 says that Jesus was passing by and he saw a man named Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. These are the kinds of people that followed Jesus, people that were hurting, people that were hungry and thirsty and people willing to get up and leave everything behind in order to be his disciple. Now, in Matthew's account, Matthew tells us that this is really who he is. He's also called Levi in Mark's account. But in Mark chapter, Matthew chapter nine and verse nine, we know here we're actually talking about the man who wrote the first gospel account in our New Testament. Matthew, it's not uncommon for people in the Bible to have two names, Matthew and Levi, Simon and Peter. You think about people like Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel. This idea of having two names was not an uncommon thing, but this is Matthew that wrote the first gospel account. Jesus comes and tells him, I want you to follow me. He gets up. He leaves everything in order to follow Jesus. It's as if he's inherited this from his Old Testament Jewish tradition. It's Abraham. When God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, 
And he says, Abraham or Abram, I want you to leave your father's house, your kindred, your country and go to a land that I'll show you. Stop Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse four and say, Abraham, where are you going? I have no idea. God told me to start walking and I'll walk until he tells me to stop. It's Ruth in Ruth chapter one. She tells Naomi in Ruth one and verse 16. Urge me not to leave you or to return from following after you. Where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. The Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. It's Nehemiah who had a cushy job as a cupbearer in Persia. But in Nehemiah 2 and verses 1 through 8, Nehemiah says, I'm leaving that behind because the walls have fallen in Jerusalem and I want to do something about it. The kinds of people that followed Jesus were people that left everything behind in order to do so. There was a recent poll done that says about 62 percent of Americans don't trust Congress and don't like their politicians. And, you know, in the days of the Roman Empire, people sort of felt that same way about Jewish tax collectors. It wasn't just that they were Jewish or even that they were tax collectors and they've aligned with the Romans. But tradition has it that a lot of these Jewish tax collectors would just kind of up their commission a bit and take more taxes than they really should. It was a violation of Proverbs 11 and verse one that says God honors a just balance. But a crooked balance is ultimately an abomination before him. Those that trample the poor, God would trample them. A man like Matthew probably was despised by his contemporaries because he collected these taxes. And if he was corrupt like the others, he probably took more than his just due. But then Jesus calls him and he leaves everything to follow him. The text says that he's beside the sea and perhaps he's there because as individuals go out on the ferries, he takes those taxes or maybe as they bring things into Capernaum as sort of like a customs agent. Matthew takes these taxes. But whatever the case, he heard about Jesus and he left everything. Maybe Jesus had been preaching by his booth before and he caught a whiff of the sermon when Jesus says, lay up not for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust do corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But instead, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves don't break through and steal. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Perhaps it was his lucky day and he didn't have a customer this day and he heard Jesus when he said, what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Jesus says, Matthew, I want you to leave your booth and follow me. And guess what? He does. And when he becomes a part of this band of disciples and he learns their stories, they did the same thing. Peter and Andrew, James and John and Matthew 4, 18 through 22. They had left their fishing business behind. As far as James and John is concerned, they left Zebedee and sons fishing and they also decide to follow Jesus. They left everything behind. And people today will follow Jesus if they be willing to leave everything behind today, too. We shouldn't think that people in the first century were special or were an anomaly, meaning they were supposed to give up stuff, but we're not supposed to give up anything. We should be asking ourselves, what have I left behind to follow him? Paul had a trash heap in Philippians chapter three. Paul says when trash day comes in eternity, I've got some stuff that I gave up in order to follow Jesus. He says I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees concerning the zeal that was in the law. I was blameless and righteous. But whatever I could have gained, Paul says, I threw it all on the trash heap so that I might follow Jesus. We should all look at our lives and say, have I given up anything? I mean, anything. In order to follow him. You know, there are people who've surrendered things in order to follow Jesus. People who have said, you know, this would be a higher paying job for me and maybe at some point in life, but not right now, because if I take this promotion, it'll make it in such a way that I can never assemble with the saints and be with the people of God. I don't think I can do that. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. 
I've known people who've been accepted into some of the best universities in the world, but they said, you know what? The church is weak up there, and I wouldn't be able to serve the Lord without distraction. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 35. Instead, I'm going to go to this smaller school, and maybe God will open doors for me here. I've known people who've said, you know, my whole family, our whole lives, we've been a part of this religious system, or I was raised in this religious way. One of my best friends, he was raised as an atheist, his whole family life. This is what everybody's done. And he said, you know what? I believe Jesus is the son of God. Paul said, I'm a Pharisee, son of a Pharisee, Acts 23 and verse six. But to follow Jesus, I'll leave it all behind. People are still leaving everything behind today because they want to be where he is. And those are the kind of people that Jesus loves. He's asking us to be willing to give up things in order to inherit the best. Here's number four. Number four, the kinds of people that followed Jesus were people that realized they were sinners. In Mark chapter two, verse 15 and 16, Mark, Matthew throws this party. Once Matthew becomes a disciple, Matthew throws this party. And as you might imagine, being an outcast in the Jewish circles, his friends would have been other tax collectors and people that are sinners. Maybe they're called sinners because they didn't receive John's baptism. Luke seven and verse 30. Maybe they're called sinners because they haven't kept up with the Pharisees, additional traditions that have been added on to the law. But whatever the case is, Matthew throws this party and they're there. And you know who else is there? Jesus is there eating with these individuals. Luke 15, one and two says that all of the sinners and tax collectors would draw near to hear him. And the kinds of people that followed Jesus were people that knew they didn't have their act together and they were sinners. But don't miss what Mark tells us in chapter two and verse 15. Jesus, the Pharisees are frustrated with Jesus and they'll say in verse 16, this man, what is he doing? What is your master doing eating with these tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus didn't come there just for the party. If you look at verse 15, he's eating with these individuals. And the last thing Mark tells us is, and they followed. They followed him. They became disciples. Jesus didn't go there just for a meal. Jesus went with his eye on conversion. And the reality is people in this same category, they follow Jesus today. Could you advance the next slide? No matter what list you look on, if you look up the worst people in the world, and I looked at dozens this week. Adolf Hitler is always at the top. There's a website dedicated called the top 10 of everything. And if you look it up and you look up the worst, it's always Adolf Hitler at the top. And then there are others that you might expect. Stalin, Pol Pot, Osama bin Laden and other individuals that are wicked. I know some people that wouldn't make that list, but they probably look at their lives and they think they should. They say, Hiram, I've done terrible things. I've done things that I don't believe I deserve the forgiveness of God. And as though he's reached it out to me, I'm unworthy to receive it. And if Jesus was standing before Hitler while he still had breath in his body, he'd look him right in the eyes and say, you know, I came for you, too. You've done the worst, but you haven't done that which can't be forgiven. As we think about individuals that we want to reach out to, we need to remember that Jesus came to save sinners of whom Paul said he was chief. First Timothy 1:15. Now, there are two extremes on this point, and both of them are wrong. On the one hand, there are people when they think about sinners, they think to themselves, I don't want anything to do with people like that. They kind of have the icky factor when they think about people like that. You know, those kinds of people, they curse. And they drink, they get drunk. You know, they're living together. They're not married. They do drugs and they, they do terrible things. And people have the pharisaical mindset toward them. Verse 16, what are you doing with people like that? And we need to be reminded, John 17 and verse 15, that Jesus says, I didn't come to take you out of the world, but to keep you in it and make sure you keep the evil one away from you. First Corinthians five, nine and 10. Paul says, what do we have to do with judging outsiders? God judges those that are outside. We should always expect that the devil's children won't be on their best behavior. Jesus knew that. And so he came to reach out to him. The one extreme says, I want nothing to do with people like that. But then there's the other extreme. 
people that realize that, yeah, these folks are sinners and they kind of use it as an excuse to just kind of buddy up with everybody. There are no morals, no standards. And hey, I'm like Jesus. I've come to seek and save the lost. Realize forgetting that Jesus never sinned with these people. He never affirmed or applauded or congratulated their sin. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Jesus never makes anybody feel good about being far away from God. He would say things like go and sin no more. Don't sin lest a worse thing happen to you. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I've come so that your life can be changed. And the kinds of people that came to Jesus, they realized they were broken. They were sinners and they needed his help. Here's the fifth and final group of people that came to Jesus, and it's those individuals who realized that they were needy. The Pharisees say in verse 16, why does he eat with these tax collectors and sinners? And then in verse 17, Jesus gives a response. If you could advance the next slide, John, you know, some people, they don't like going to the doctor. And there's a lot of reasons. Some people don't like going to the doctor because they say, well, they always prick on me and hit on me when I go there and I don't like bleeding. Some people don't like going to the doctor because they're really not fans of the cost when they go. There are other people that say, I've really got no business going to the doctor because, well, I'm already healthy. I know I'm doing well. Doctors can't do anything for me. Some people don't have a doctor or the resources or the avenues by which they might go. But when you open up the New Testament, the Bible tells us that every one of us is sick. Every one of us needs a doctor. The cost is already covered and he's willing to help and to heal whosoever will come. Marshall Keeble used to call him the doctor who never lost the case. And in Mark chapter 2 and verse 17, if you could advance the slide again, we find that Jesus came to heal individuals that were needy, and these are the kinds of people that came to him. Notice the text. He says, the Son of Man has not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus says that those individuals that are well don't need a doctor, but those individuals who know they're broken. Now, Jesus is saying two things. He's saying these individuals that are at this dinner, they realize their need. And I've come for people who realize it just like them. But he's also saying that the Pharisees are just as broken and they need him just as much. And when we think about evangelism and when we think about our own lives, we really need to see ourselves as individuals that are needy and that are desperate and that have no hope of being saved outside of Jesus. The kinds of people that came to Jesus were the people that said, you know, I've exhausted all other measures. The woman in Mark chapter five for 12 years, the Bible says she spent everything that she had. Her condition didn't get better. It got worse. She was needy. And she says, I've come to Jesus. Think about the man in John chapter nine, the blind man. How desperate and needy do you have to be to let somebody spit on you? Jesus spits and then touches him. Surely he's at the end of his rope. And he says, whatever it takes, I just want to see. The people that realized that they were needy, that they couldn't do it on their own. Those kinds of people came to Jesus and Jesus says, I've come to fix you. I've come to heal you. People that express their spiritual destitute without him. First Timothy chapter four and verse 10 says that he's the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And the Pharisees in their smug and in their self-righteousness, they say to themselves, we've got it all covered. We don't need a doctor. In John 15 and verse 22, Jesus would say to them, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now that I have, there's no longer any excuse. There are people in the world that you ask them about studying the Bible. You talk to them about Jesus and they say, you know what? No, thanks. I'm already good to go. I already know everything I need to know. I'm sure I'm in a good and safe state. I'm in a right relationship with God, regardless of what the Bible says. But then there are others that say, would you help me to see the truth? Would you help me to see my need? I'm in the darkness And I would love to come into his marvelous light. 
Jesus extends this olive branch to the Pharisees and many of them, for the most part, throughout his earthly ministry, they all missed it. But those that got it, when you look at the people that surrounded Jesus over and over again, what you find is it's the people that you would least expect. We should never look in on a crowd of people surrounding the throne of God and say, hey, what's this person doing there? I wouldn't expect to see your kind there. We ought to always be saying to ourselves, I've got no business being so far away. I need to get closer because guess what? As much as I want other people to need them, I need them just as much. Mark chapter two tells us about the kinds of people that followed Jesus then and about the kinds of people that follow Jesus now. We find that people are hurting. People's lives are broken. And the same thing's true today. People's lives and dreams are crushed. And Christianity is the answer to their hopes and dreams. It's the antidote to the world's ills. Jesus's blood shed on Calvary. And we ought to invite everybody to come and take part of it. We ought to be like Matthew. When we find the truth, we ought to invite all of our friends and loved ones to come and know and see the very same things. When we look at people's lives that may be filled with sin and wretchedness, that's not what disqualifies them. It's the very thing that qualifies them for his saving grace. If they could fix it themselves, they wouldn't need Jesus. But Jesus's arms stretched out on Calvary says none of us could do it ourselves. We needed divine intervention. And that's what he's come to provide. Jesus wants us to be honest about our need. And then he's the doctor who's never lost the case, who's come to heal, to help, and ultimately to save. Maybe tonight somebody realizes I'm in need. I'm spiritually destitute. I can't be saved without his aid. And I would like to name the name of Christ. The Bible says whosoever will can come. You'll be a part of the elect. You'll be a part of the family of God. And you can throw yourself on his mercy. He'll help you. It'll whet your spiritual appetite as you rise from the waters of baptism. And as you keep coming, he'll keep teaching. Maybe you've already obeyed the gospel and you need the prayers of the church. If we can help you in any way, come now as together we stand and as we sing.